Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are walking through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 106. Last week we continued the parable of the vineyard uh, and the tenants and the, the master of the vineyard going away and sending servants to come check on the status of the vineyard and yeah. eventually the master sends his son and these tenants kill him and... Uh, comes back and kind of punishes the these tenants and replaces them with those who will produce fruit and take care of the vineyard properly. And we summarize this parable to show that it's not a theological message of Israel being rejected and replaced with the church, but it's Jesus addressing these people who are criticizing and questioning him, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, to say, like if you're not going to fulfill what God has bestowed upon you in terms of authority and leadership and carrying out the message, like you as leadership are going to be replaced. Like the kingdom is going to come under new management. The vineyard still stays the same. Israel's role does not change. Uh, he just wants people to produce fruit for his purposes. Exactly. And then from there, we moved on to another parable about the kingdom being compared to a king who has a wedding feast for his son and he's calling inviting guests that he knows uh, he wants to have a big party a big festival for this event and nobody comes and eventually he goes off and uh invites other people who like anyone that he can find because he wants his house to be filled with people to celebrate yeah. um, and to show that the the call, the invitation to the kingdom is the same no matter your ethnicity, your status, your right. success, your failures. Uh, the call is still the same, and he ends it with many are called, but few are chosen. Yeah. These, this is good stuff. This is... It's so funny. You would think that so much of this would have been from his three years of ministry or whatever the time frame was or whatever. But remember, we're in that last week now. And so many of these good stories are coming from here. It's, it's kind of neat. Well, we're just going to pick up on that because, okay, there. You, if you remember, they're kind of, this is somewhat contentious, right? This whole little uh, interaction between these these guys. And it's going to continue. We enter a very interesting section that's known as, at least to some, I don't, I don't know if this is like everybody calls it this, but it's, it's the four questions. And we're about to enter in on the first of those four. Uh, now, I'm going to read from Matthew, but I'm also going to pull some from Luke. So let's talk about where we're at. It's Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. And I'm going to do something a little bit different because I want to read the bits from Luke a little bit at the top and a little bit at the bottom. So I'm going to read the top of Luke, all of Matthew, and then the bottom of Luke. So let's do that. Luke 20:19 says, The scribes 
and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Okay, so that's Luke's take on it, at least setting it up. Now I'm going to read from Matthew 22.15. says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. All right, now again, I'm going to sneak over to Luke and read his ending in, uh, this is chapter 20, verse 26. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. All right. So this is cool stuff. I mean, this is, this is, you know, like power interaction going on here, right? So again, this is the beginning, the first of four questions. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, three of them are going to be asked of Jesus. But one question, the final question, it's going to be asked by Jesus. So that's kind of interesting too. And I just want to say this real quickly. I'm not going to dwell on it. I've read a few things. There are some very interesting parallels with the questions being posed here, these four questions. And then uh, there are questions in the Passover Haggadah. There, there are four questions for the sons to ask. There's, there's supposed to be some very interesting parallels up. I, I don't, I guess I don't know enough about it. I don't know how we could learn a lot from it right here at this point in our study. So I'm not going to really delve into that. We're just going to stop here with a brief mention. Uh, I just wanted to say it, though. If somebody wants to go check it out, it might be fun. So anyway, now, one thing, the reason I wanted to read from both Matthew and Luke is Matthew and Mark, uh, their accounts are more similar in that they both have the Pharisees and the Herodians addressing Jesus. And we've talked about this before. Somehow, the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up on anything Super strange, super strange teamwork there. It's very weird. But 
I guess it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that, right? They, they, they found a reason to join together. But Luke, I mean, this is all very strange. He, he's got the scribes and the chief priests kind of ganging up or, or at least, you know, getting their spies, spies together, whatever. And so if you remember earlier, who were we talking about? Who were the group of people Jesus was interacting with? Well, it was chief priests, scribes, and elders, Though Matthew, he does kind of mention the Pharisees uh, like they're around or listening or something. So I don't know. Luke kind of sort of feels like it might actually be a more smooth flow, a better continuation uh, where uh, Matthew and Mark seem to suggest more of a change of scene, if you will. But in a way, it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter who's who. I mean, the, the purpose, the, the trap, all of that is the same. And Jesus's response is what's important. And so it doesn't really matter, matter who they are. I, I kind of feel, I don't know, somehow it just makes more sense to me that they're switching scenes, but whatever, doesn't make me right. It's just, that's how I take it. You can take it any way you want. Now, you also, you might also read the Luke account and see in it some sort of conspiracy among all of the groups. They are all united as one. So you might think the chief priests and the scribes and the elders somehow, you know, hook up with the Pharisees and the Herodians. They make one big group of those who are against him. And and then that might match up with, you know, Mark's version of they sent or, you know, whatever. It's hard to say. I don't know why, again, we're, we're just talking about these discrepancies because we don't want to act like we don't see them. We don't want to act like they don't matter. But as we've pointed out, you know what? There's a ton of this all over the gospel stories, and we're okay with it because of the whole idea of eyewitness testimony and the differences and all that. It actually adds to the authenticity. But anyway, uh, life lesson. Samuel, when someone is buttering you up, you most awesome human you, right? (laughs) You have to know that they may have an ulterior motive that's not actually in your best interest. And let's at least take quick note of what it was that they said. They told him, hey, you are true. Now, just to be clear, I think it's probably more likely that their intention here was to say not you are truth, like in the God sense, the Yahweh sense in their mind. They they weren't saying that. They were saying, dude, your aim is true. You are on target, that kind of stuff, right? So you are true. They also said that he teaches the way of God truthfully. And again, this is another way of saying that his aim was true. He was in no way changing or modify or corrupting, etc., the Torah in his teaching. They were saying, dude, you're, you're right on the money. Everything you say about Torah, it's, yep, you're right. Okay, you can probably hear the insincerity. And then they said, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. And that's to say he wasn't a people pleaser. He wasn't saying things to tickle any particular crowd or peoples or whatever. He spoke the truth for truth's sake, and it was not for his own sake, and it was regardless of the consequences. Now, Samuel, in all that they said, let's disregard their motives for a second. But of everything that they said, 
where's the false part? Um, I don't know if I see any. There, yeah, there aren't any. Everything they said was absolutely correct. Now, they may not have believed it. They may have been insincere, but it was 100% true or accurate. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's funny. And, and if you think about it, all those groups we mentioned, chief priests, scribes, elders, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, just fill in the blank with them all. All along the way, Jesus is going to agree and disagree with at least some little something from every group, one time or another. So it's not as if Jesus is, in fact, only part of one group. And we've said he aligns way more with the Pharisees than any other group. But boy, he had plenty of disagreements with them, too. So anyway, back to the question. What, why is this such a trick question? So the basic assumption when you ask a question like this is that there are only two answers. Sammy, you want to take a guess as to what those two possible answers are? Uh... Yes or no? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why they feel that it's such a good trick. Should we pay the tax or not? And, the, and, and so, I mean, let's, let's get down to what is it saying. If he were to say yes, that they should pay the tax, well, that's theoretically going to get him in trouble with Israel generally, most especially the Pharisees, but everybody, because why? Well, he's, he's supporting the empire. He's conceding to idolatry, maybe, or, you know, something like that. So, so he's going to get him in trouble with, quote-unquote, his people. If he were to answer, no, do not pay the tax, well, now he's going to get in trouble with Rome, and, and most especially groups like the Herodians. And why? Well, because it makes him a traitor to Rome. It, there, there's a potential death sentence. And I don't know if you noticed uh, I think it was in Luke where he said they, they were looking for something that they could accuse him before the governor. Well, okay, they're talking about a Roman official. And, and what's funny is Jesus is actually accused of this particular thing, as if he had said no here. He's actually being accused of this in Luke 23, uh, verse 2. We're not going to go there now, but it's a thing you could go look at if you wanted. But Jesus he recognizes their bad intentions. He's totally on to their ploy. And of course, <laughs> there's only two options, yes or no. And what does he do? He chooses option number three that we didn't know was there. And it's, it's <laughs> classic. So on the surface, we can easily see, you know, like sort of the basic meaning of his response. What's really going on? He requests a coin. Very interesting. He doesn't carry coins in the temple. It's a very Pharisee thing to do. He requests a coin, and since the coin bears Caesar's image, he makes this reasonable assumption. Well, if it's got his image on it, it must belong to him in the general sense. And we get that. We can see that. So if it belongs to him, well, then you may as well just give him what is already his. So very easy kind of thinking behind this. And it, it almost, right at first, it's almost as if it really has nothing to do with God. Look, it's a coin. It's got this guy's image on it. Whatever. Yeah, give him what's his. Whatever. But again, I say almost. He then goes on and says that we should give to God the things that are God's. 
And so here's the real money question, Samuel. What are those things and why should we give them to him? Do you want to take a guess or should I just go ahead with it? Uh, I mean, what came off initially was like everything is God's because he created everything. (laughs) True. Yeah, that's true. He's going to, I think he is focusing on a very, very specific thing. And I'll show you what that, what I'm talking about. So remember, what did he say about the coin? Whose image did it have on it? Caesar's. Yeah. And so why should we give him the, the, the coin? Because it's because his. it has, yeah, it has his image on it. That's exactly. his authority. Yeah. So the things that are God's are the things that bear God's what? God's image. Yeah. And what are those things? Humanity. Yeah. It's not just coins. It's humans. They bear God's image. So in the same way that you should return to Caesar the things bearing his image, you should return to God the things bearing his image. And like a broken record, how do you do that? It's by being truly human. That is behaving in accordance with his instructions being in God's image, following the instructions of Torah. Which, I mean, think about that. Yeah, you want to do some, you know, silly little manufactured human thing and, you know, call that Caesar's and give it, yeah, what for whatever, go ahead and do that. But remember, God's image is on you and on me and on him and her and every right? Yeah, give that to God. This is, this that's such a cool image. And when they heard it, they marveled. Bested again. Give Caesar a coin, but give God your whole self. And they just, they couldn't believe that they just couldn't get this guy. Now, you, I don't know, today, all of our experience, my goodness, all the information available on the internet, all the things that we've seen, you may or may not find any individual interaction, you know, like this one, all that impressive. I do, but you know, some don't. And for those who don't, just imagine people going after you for a year or two or three, and not just about any old thing, they're going after you using a very well-defined and familiar standard. It's not just about, you know, sinning or not sinning. Sinning, this is people trying to trick you or trap you in just your words. And so to give up nothing incriminating in all of that time, I just think it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I can't believe that in my 28 years of living that I have not heard this Caesar unto Caesar's God unto God's taught in this way before. And I like this interpretation so much more than this story just being a defense of pay your taxes and give your tithes like it's it's so much <laughs> it's so much more complex than that like it's oh, it's so good i hope people are feeling as enlightened and awakened by this as i am feeling yeah i you know what I, samuel i had no idea that this was going to be the first time you heard that this is super cool yeah and yeah i mean think about it who 
Who are the people that are going to champion the idea of paying your taxes? Who are the people who are going to champion the idea of paying your tithe to the church? The people who are benefiting from it. Mm. Yeah. It, th- yeah. I think this is, a, this is a really good lesson. So anyway, that's question number one. Anything else, Samuel? Nope. All right. Well, we're moving on. Question number two. Now, this is going to cover Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. Pretty long. We're also going to look at Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. Also long. And Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. The longest of them all. But... (laughs) Uh, I think what we're going to do in this particular instance, I think we're going to read from Mark and then uh, a couple little bits on the end of Matthew and Luke. So here we go. Mark, uh, starting at twelve eighteen, And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. (laughs) Isn't that great? I would, I, I, one day I want to say that to someone. You're not just wrong, you are quite wrong. (laughs) But anyway, at the end of Matthew's version, down in verse 33, he adds, And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And then at the end of Luke, verse 39 and 40, he adds, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now that turns out to not be exactly true, but what? <laughs> still, we, we, you know, different, different ending. So think about this. We had the, I'm just going to say, we'll go with the Matthew Mark version. We had the Pharisees first, Pharisees and Herodians, and now it's the Sadducees' turn. This is question number two. 
And all three gospel writers want to make sure we know, they make the point that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. They They deny it completely. So here are these same Sadducees. They come and they want to ask a question about the resurrection. So, I mean, I think we have to presume or assume that they're trying to make Jesus and this entire belief in the resurrection, they want to make him look dumb. Now, as far as we know, Sadducees only accepted the written Torah. They didn't, they didn't accept oral law as a general rule. They didn't accept any of the traditions. And for the most part, they didn't even uh, accept any of the other scriptures. Now, they certainly knew them. They were very well, uh, they, they were familiar with them, but they only accepted what was written in Torah. It's a very hard line. Now, they use a command from the Torah, and this is, uh, I think the term is the leveret marriage. It's not a term we would use, but you get the idea. It's that uh, you have to, if your brother dies with no child, you have to marry and give him offspring. Uh, so they intentionally create this, this silly, bothersome scenario. So Samuel, just to get us on the page, why don't you read Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's really easy to see and understand. It's in the law. We get it. Okay? Now, you may hear that, maybe try to imagine it in your head or something, and you may cringe. Okay, I get that. It's modern, it's 2022, whatever. But this was a very progressive stance at the time in Israel when compared to all of the existing cultures around them. And this was a way of elevating the worth of a woman or women generally and ensuring their good care. This was... This was, I mean, if you were a woman and you heard this back in the day when it was laid down, this would have been like inspiring, elevating, motivating. It, your heart would soar. Mm. This, was, this was awesome. Okay, but that's, the, that's like the backstory. That's where it comes from. The bothersome part is this, at least here in their story, their, their question. If some poor woman has to you know, leverage this law multiple times, and in this case, seven, well, what does this mean after resurrection? While they were here on this earth, in this age, whatever, okay, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong. It's mostly okay, because, well, she was only ever married to one at a time. But after the resurrection, in the new age, There's sort of an assumption being made here. They will all be alive together. And so that is the question. Are they all her husband at once? Or, I mean, what do you do? Is it just the first one or just the last one? And if we're being fair, if you're going, well, if I believed the way the Sadducees believed, you could see how this whole scenario would seem like a very real problem to them. And you might even be able to see how they would think that it would be a real problem for others who didn't believe the way the Sadducees believed. But 
Jesus, he's not affected by this at all, and he doesn't flower it up at all. He, he just tells them flat out, you are wrong, and again, my favorite, quite wrong. <laughs> and he gives them two reasons. You don't know the scriptures, which is, I think part of that is even to say they were just too rigid in their interpretations. That's a good lesson for all of us today. And number two, they didn't actually know or understand the power of God. And it's, I mean, you know, sort of a simple way to say that is, look, if God can literally create all of creation and he can make man, well, certainly he can resurrect him. Anyway, they're simply wrong. And then he adds, and I think this is great for us, he adds a little explanation for what it's really going to be like. And one of the things he says is that after the resurrection, there is no marriage. Now, Samuel, have you ever thought to yourself, why? Absolutely. My wife and I have had conversations about this. It's like, why can't we be married in the eternal realm? Like, I, yeah. I want to be, I want to have my wife in the eternal realm. <laughs> right, right. It seems like it would be a better way to be married. But let's see if we can think about some some reasons why this might be so. And hopefully our listeners will have even better than what we come up with. Now, here's the thing. If we go back, remember you've got like Genesis 1, that's the first creation story, and then Genesis 2, 3, etc. You, you have like the second creation story, Adam and Eve in the garden, all that stuff. In that second creation story, if, if you look at it, you could say that at the moment when God creates Adam, Adam is alone, all right? You could say that he was complete all in and of himself. But remember, when God says that man shouldn't be alone, what does he do? He takes something from that man and makes woman. And so there's a couple possibilities. You could look at that and you could say, oh, wow, God is God. And so he created two complete things from one complete thing. But that isn't what happens. He makes two incomplete things, man and woman. Each of them have a lot of attributes or whatever that overlap, but they also have some things that are very, very particularly theirs. And that's why we say, you know, what, what's that uh, as a book? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus or, you know, something like that. It's we are very different. But after the resurrection, when man is a new creation, and he has the Torah written on his mind and on his heart, he's now complete again. And so is woman. So these two incomplete things now become completed after the resurrection. And why is that important? Well, they were originally to be made complete by becoming one in marriage. So why is there no resurrection or marriage after resurrection? Because it's not needed for a human to be whole or complete. So there's one reason. And then we could also go down this path of, you know what, there's no longer a need for copulation or procreation or whatever word you want to put in there. We're trying to be nice. It's a family program, right? <laughs> so there's no need for marriage. Well, why is there no longer a need for this procreation? Well, th there aren't going to be any new humans after the you know, original set. There are those who attain eternal life. You attain it 
through this life, and and they are all that there will ever be, at least as far as we are aware in the story. See, in this life, in this age, procreation is a way to make life continue. It's it's almost as if through having babies, we can live eternally. I live through my kids and their kids and their kids after them, in a sense, right? So procreation was like a cheap imitation of eternal life. But life after resurrection will only be eternal. So you don't need to be married to be complete. You don't need to be married so that you can actually have kids to carry life on. So, the, I mean, these are some pretty big things, right? And then some say that whatever relational bonds and ties that we have in this life right now will continue, but but it's going to be in a form or in a manner that is somehow appropriate for that new age, that new state. And, you know, we have to we have to try to understand that as opposed to all of the loving bonds that we have in this life just going away or becoming nothing, okay? So it's not to say that those bonds, are, are, even like the marriage bond, it's not as if it just completely disappears and becomes nothing, but somehow it becomes appropriate in this new state. And you can... You may like that, dislike it, think of it any way you want. I, I'm throwing it out there. It's it's another one of the popular things. And importantly, we have to remember that at death, what happens, Samuel, to the marriage covenant when one of the two dies? Um, well, I know in traditional Western marriages, they say, till death do us part. So I guess yeah. when one of them dies, they're no longer married anymore. <laughs> yeah, the covenant is ended. You could read about it from Paul. It was the same then, and what you said about today, yeah, that's exactly what happens. The covenant in marriage, the marriage covenant, it's just gone. So there is a very real sense in which because one or both have died, well, I mean, they simply are no longer husband and wife. So you could go back to the original question from these Sadducees, and you could say, look, I mean, the technical correct answer is that She's no one's wife because all of the covenants ended at death, right? It's not a it's not a tricky question at all. But we understand, you know what? That actually does feel very complex and interesting, and we have that question just naturally. So anyway, all of these things, and I'm sure there are many more. It makes the resurrected version of us like angels. Jesus says that. And in fact, in Luke's version, it says that we're equal to angels. Well, what is what does that actually mean? What are we actually saying? Well, I would like to bring into this a phrase. Angels are sons of God. I mean, when you're reading your scripture and you're looking through all this kind of stuff, there is a category called sons of God. Angels, heavenly beings, whatever you want to call they are sons of God, as opposed to sons of man. That's who we are. We're human. We're in creation. We are sons of man. But that gets a little more complex. And here's what I mean. Actually, this is going to come up later. That's why I put that in there. Okay, sorry. Hold on to that idea. 
<laughs> and sadly, uh, I just know it. We're going to actually break up the podcast, and it's going to be in the next episode. But anyway, hold on to that thing. Jesus telling us that we are like angels or equal to angels, and I'm saying you've got to hold on to this phrase about sons of God as opposed to the idea of sons of man. But anyway, Jesus gives them a little more specific instruction, okay? And this is how they can know that the resurrection is, in fact, real and to be expected. Remember, he's speaking to Sadducees, and what do they believe, Samuel? That there is no resurrection. Right. So Jesus is showing them how you guys, you just don't get it. Here's a very simple thing that you can look at and know that it's true. He cites Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And this is at the beginning of the story of Moses and the burning bush. Now, if you went back and read it, God introduces himself as, actually, there's an an additional character. He says that he is the God of Moses's father. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, in that scenario, there are at least 75% of those men who are listed that we know are dead at the time that God is talking to Moses, Okay. And he says, God's words, I am the God, not I was the God. And it speaks of an ongoing relationship, even though they're dead. Now, what's interesting is that this alone was enough to prove some sort of existence after death, at least in Jesus's mind, which I think we have to give him some credit for knowing some stuff, right? And in Jesus's mind, this even proved the resurrection. This was all he gave them. This is enough for you to know the truth. And what's funny about it is that verse, it's like all at once, it depends on the idea that God is the God of the living, but it also seems to reinforce it all at the same time. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? And there, just so you can know, in history, there was another Pharisee I didn't know him personally. Let's get real. Uh, his name was uh, Rabbi Samai or Samai something. I don't know how to pronounce it. He actually made a similar argument. And here's what he said. He said that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land, and they never received it. Therefore, they must be resurrected for God to keep his promise. Now, You may like or dislike that. I don't know. I don't care. I love that because it shows it again. It it so emphasizes God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, etc. God really is faithful to his promises. And the Jews all along the way have really, really just accepted and expected that. So it's really good. But in the end, everybody's astonished at this teaching. And in fact, some of the scribes, they just kind of threw in the towel. Teacher, you have spoken well. And there didn't, there didn't appear to be any reason to try to test or trick or trap him anymore. But they're not actually going to stop. I'm just saying <laughs> there didn't appear to be a reason to uh, continue. But anyway, there you go, Samuel. A lot of stuff, but good stuff. Yeah. It's really cool. I'm kind of getting this sense that it's almost as if Jesus is ministering to these Sadducees through this 
question about marriage to try to get them to see more clearly about the reality of resurrection um, through his quoting of Exodus uh, there at the end of that section. I just think that's really cool that he's not like, he doesn't give off this uh, perspective or sense or vibe that he's given up on the Sadducees or their lost cause or whatever. I think he's addressing a misconception that they have. Uh, yeah. And I think that's really cool. Oh, it is. Yeah. He never stops trying. Here's the truth. Do what you will with it. I did want to ask, though, um, I know that you said that we were going to come back to it later. Um, <laughs> but, and I'm I'm not saying this because I don't think that you're teaching on what Jesus is getting at in terms of marriage within the kingdom and the world to come, how that dynamic is going to be. But I'm looking specifically at Jesus' words because in verse 30, it, it's almost as if the, the statement about the angels uh, are is his response or his explanation. Like in verse 30, it says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So that's it. Just in terms of the phrasing of that statement, that seems to be his response to why uh, marriage is not present in the resurrection. So, uh, if it's going to be some time before we come back to it, could you give us like a thirty to ninety second preview of why he uses that as his uh, defense? I guess. Uh, well, on 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 one hand. Uh, and, you know, we don't know a lot about heavenly beings and and what they what their life is like. Right. We, we get little little glimpses in Scripture. But on one hand, the, the understanding is and, and you could call this tradition or you may you may think that Scripture explicitly shows it or whatever. But there's the expectation that, first of all, angels, they don't marry. That's, that's not a part of their existence. In fact, we don't even have any real indication that they are, for example, male and female. So it, it, in a sense, they are completely outside of our understanding in that way. And so there's that little bit of it. And then, of course, angels... Remember, I went back to the story about Adam and Eve saying, well, remember, they, they, he created one who was complete and then took from him, and now there are two incompletes, and marriage was the thing that made them whole. Well, again, angels don't have that either. They haven't been somehow diminished in some way and, and set in a, a, uh, an environment or in a situation where they needed to be made complete. So there's that. Now, the the sons of God part, the reason I brought in that phrase is because, and it's a it's a big deal later in the story when we talk about the idea of uh, heaven and earth overlapping and the idea of rule. Man was to rule over creation. Angels or the heavenly beings, if we want to say it that way, were ruling over the heavenlies, but all of this was in partnership with God, and then when there's this overlapping, 
mankind rules a little bit uh, in the heavenlies and and takes on that status of son of God in addition to son of man, whatever. I don't know. There's a lot to it. But does that help any? I think so. It's. I think it's generating the classic rabbinic response that you're uh, – my question – and your response is leading now to more questions, but I should Fantastic. I should I should shelve them for now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, you have to you have to, in some sense, go look. Sometimes we're talking about mysteries. Sometimes we're just talk, talking about things we don't know, and so we're trying to look into it, and we're trying to see. We're trying to make some sense where we don't have enough information. So there is a lot of that going on, Samuel. We just have to we just have to come to grips with that. Yeah. And then there's there's also the, I'm okay. To be fair, I'm bringing in some ideas outside, the, you know, the the real tight little context here, and so maybe I'm maybe I'm adding to the confusion. Bad on me. <laughs> no, not at all. But we'll see. The, we'll see when we uh, get there. I think it just, like you said, it adds to the mystery nature of this that our limited, finite brains are trying to make sense of so it's yeah. okay that we're feeling resistance when we're trying to wrestle with it yeah it's uh yeah it's tough so boy samuel a lot of information here do we actually give our listeners a break and do a short podcast and end now or do we go on to question three and risk another long one I mean, I have more things I could bring up from the previous section if you were wanting to <laughs> not go on, but I am totally game for whatever. You know what? Why don't you do that? Because I think uh, I think it'll be good. We'll be able to hit the next two next time. And of course, that, that guarantees that we've got the cliffhanger and <laughs> All right, let's, let's do it. What do you got? Okay. Um, just in direct response to you talking about this angel's reply with Jesus with the marriage thing and the resurrection and you saying that there's no specific mentioning in the biblical text about angels having like male or female genders. Um, I, it, this whole section reminded me of there's a midrash on Genesis where, um, oh. uh, let's see, in Genesis 2.21 uh, the text says, and he, God, took one of his ribs, and that's where you were talking about he took something out of man to form woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rabbis were saying that that word, that Hebrew word for ribs, could also potentially be interpreted as sides. Yeah. Um, and there's this midrash that says that, like, God first created two faces in the original creature, and afterwards he divided them. And it's getting at the sense that Originally, the first human was formed similar to a conjoined twin. Um, And, you know, you have male and female both present there, and then you, you know, he separates them. So I don't really know how that adds to this whole situation other than, like, maybe in the resurrection there's some kind of returning to that uh, state. before the separation, I don't know, but um, I just wanted to add that, that maybe it can enrich the discussion or it can bring up some more things to talk about. So then you'd have some dude walking around the kingdom that's like seven or eight total people all in one. (laughs) (laughs) 
what, what do they call those? It's not twins. It's like octa somethings. Uh, septuplets. Or, yeah, octuplets. That's right. O- yeah. 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 Because seven guys <laughs> and one girl. <laughs> you'd have a <laughs> conjoined octuplets <laughs> running around. Okay, that'd be weird. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that helped, but it's definitely a cool image in my head that yeah. I never thought that I would had today. So there's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else you got? Um, one of the things that it, it, it is referring back to Genesis again when God is telling uh, man before woman has created um, after he's named all the animals and the text says that there was no suitable helper for him and God says it's not good for man to be alone um, showcasing like one of the reasons why woman was created out of man for this mutual relation this partnership this help that's coming against who you are and how you operate to ultimately better yourself so part of me wonders like well now now that I'm the more I'm talking about, the more my theory is starting to crumble. I was thinking like, well, <laughs> in in this realm, we're separated from God to some degree, you know, by sin and death. Uh, and we have these relationships, you know, in marriage uh, with the opposite sex to, to help with, I guess, that absence of God's presence being fully in our midst. But when we enter into this new realm of the resurrection in the world to come like that absence that separation is no longer a stumbling block or it's it's no longer a challenge that we have to face because god will be with us and um in our midst but why i was saying it was crumbling was like well uh, sin and death wasn't present in that part of genesis yet. <laughs> right right yeah Yeah, but that's good. That's actually a really, really good image because in the same way, and I think there are so many ways that we can look at marriage and how that is some sort of picture or image or pattern of God and our relationship to him. It's similar here. We can't really be our full, whole, complete selves without the help of another like in the human realm. And so that's where you get the husband-wife thing. And and it's and think about it. Is being married easy? Heck no. No, it's very challenging because this person, this other that, that we love so much isn't like us. And it's hard. You know, I mean, some point, at some point in your marriage, the, a, a thought, something like this is going to go through your head. What you got to be like that for? <laughs> right? Because it's so different from who you are. But it's good for you. It challenges you. It stretches you. It grows you. It changes you. It balances you. Uh, so many things that we could say. Well, that in itself is also an image of how we relate to God. And and, and in my mind, I go, yeah, Holy Spirit. When when God is interacting with me through the Spirit, in a sense, that is very similar to how I have a relationship with my wife. It, it at times challenges me. At times, it, it balances me. It can be something that I want to 
reject or ignore or whatever because it's not like who I am. And yet, in the long run, it is actually good for me. And I would say better for me to actually let this this wife or the Holy Spirit, we're kind of comparing the two, have its effect on me. And, you know, vice versa, husbands to wives and all that. It's all good. But I, I think that is a super cool and beautiful image. And so, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, and kind of to add to that um, and then circle back to the Midrash reference, just doing some quick searches on trying to get to a reason like, well, wh- why would God separate man at the beginning you know, if male and female are both present, like what is the the purpose behind making male and female distinct? And there, this particular resource I'm looking at, the rabbinic thought is that some commentators say that uh, without separating to have male and female, it, it could have brought about arrogance. It it allows the human being to see himself or herself as unique by being separate. Um, Without the separation, there could be some confusion with the rest of the created world, or like, uh, kind of like um, later in the story on the Tower of Babel, they're saying that if there wasn't the separation, the the conjoined human could mistake himself for a deity, or other created parts of the world could mistake it for a deity, and like so that I see that as like reasons why marriage are important to bring humility, to bring your specific role in God's story to bring the world back together. But then, like, in the eternal realm, like, there's not going to be arrogance. There's there's not going to be this mistaking of roles between who God is and who the human is because, like, our original state of being without sin and death being present within ourselves is going to be cast aside and we're going to have a new body and the law is going to be written on our heart. So yeah. like it, it, that kind of showcases like why marriage might not be present because marriage is a tool to help us in our limited, finite, broken state. And there's going to come a day in that eternal realm where God's going to make it right. Therefore, that tool will not be necessary just yeah. like just like the sinai law like the the uh, you know the torah itself like the, the classic western evangelical people think that when us w- with a jewish bent when we're saying like in the eternal realm like the the covenant of torah is not going to be applicable they're they're thinking like yeah because it it's done away with it doesn't mean anything and we're saying like no, because that Torah has now been interwoven with our very DNA, with our very fabric. Right. It's now a part of us, so the covenant no longer has that same application as a tool for us right. within this realm. Yeah. Yeah, that's the beauty of the new covenant. So cool. Now, I got to tell you, Sammy, I, I was really getting into everything that you were talking about, and and for me— and I'm going to ask a question that I cannot answer. So there you go. Here it comes. But it 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 really makes me go back to that one statement of God at that moment. And I know you addressed it some, but at that moment when he was looking at man, just this single, single entity, single person, 
God looked and said, It's not good that he is alone. And, I mean, you, you have actually brought some things to the table that address it and whatever, but, but for me, right here in this moment, live in the podcast, that what was God seeing that made that man being alone worse than splitting them in two and all that we know from just the empirical fact of our lives. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just, that's just, uh, that is a cool and interesting question. And I think it, it must fit in to the whole big story in just a cool way. But right here in this moment, I'm just in awe and wonder at the question itself, and I have no answers. It's neat. Yeah. So thank you same. for that. Oh, I mean, I'm <laughs> s- sitting in the awe ju- just the same with you. The yeah. mystery is, there is mystery reeking everywhere right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I say we leave everyone in awe, and we'll pick up next time. So let's get out of here. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.